One of the most profound questions that humanity can ask of itself is, are we alone in the universe, or are there other intelligent beings out there somewhere? And at some point, might we come to encounter them and know them somehow? The search for extraterrestrial life and extraterrestrial civilizations is one that is often not taken very seriously. It is often regarded as a matter of science fiction and fantasy, sometimes dismissed as even a juvenile and pointless pursuit, uh, aside from the matter of simply being an entertaining and intriguing thought. But my morning show guest today uh, is undertaking this question with the utmost of seriousness and calls for us to do the same. Dr. Avi Loeb, is chairman of Harvard's astronomy department, and uh, he leads their Galileo project, uh, which is operating a new UAP observatory at Harvard. UAP refers to unidentified aerial phenomena. And his study has uh, led him to write uh, eight books and over a thousand scientific papers. He is the director of the Institute for Theory and Computation, a Frank B. Baird professor of science at Harvard, and the author of an intriguing new book called Interstellar, The Search for Extraterrestrial Life and Our Future in the Stars. And it is Professor Loeb's contention that not only do we need to take seriously the, the question of whether or not there is intelligent life out there, so to speak, beyond our own Earth, but that we need to begin to reframe the way we think of this question, and we need to equip ourselves with new tools of, of discovery and, and understanding. And we need to begin thinking about what such an encounter with life from someplace else is going to look like and the kind of questions that it will probe, uh, will, that it will pose for us. Uh, I found so much to uh, think about in reading this intriguing book, and I'm very excited to be able to speak with Professor Loeb about it. The book, again, published by Mariner, is called Interstellar, The Search for Extraterrestrial Life and Our Future in the Stars. And uh, Professor Avi Loeb, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Thanks for having me. It's a great pleasure. One of the things that you say in your book is that there is, and I touched on this in the introduction, there is a really heavy, serious stigma that is attached to this whole notion, and that in many scientific circles and, and in other professional circles, this is something that is not taken seriously, and one risks derision uh, if one begins to talk about this with the seriousness that you do. I just wonder, in your own professional and academic career, uh, what has that difficulty uh, felt like to you? How much of that sort of skepticism and stigmatization have you experienced? Yeah, so for me, taking it seriously means uh, following the scientific method. As a scientist, I'm guided by evidence. And uh, it's very easy to say that uh, the existence of uh, an extraterrestrial partner, a technological civilization out there, is an extraordinary claim. But at the same time, most people who say that are not seeking any evidence. So it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you're not seeking evidence, you will never find it. The situation of, uh, of the famous uh, phrase by um, 
Enrico Fermi worries everybody, is quite similar to a person standing at home and saying, I don't have any partner. There is nobody around me. But we all know that to find a partner, you need to go to dating sites. At the very least, you need to go out to your backyard and search whether there are any objects out there that came from your neighbors. That's the minimum you should do. And unfortunately, everyone talking about this subject for almost seven decades now uh, was refrained from doing that. Uh, we checked for radio signals, but that's just like uh, waiting for a phone call. You need the counterpart to be active and transmit a signal in your direction at the time that you're listening. And it may well be that such signals were sent, let's say, a billion years ago, and they are now a billion light years away. So they're not here. But if anyone sent uh, packages to our neighborhood, to our mailbox, they should keep accumulating over time. They don't escape the gravitational pull of the Milky Way for the kind of speeds that we launched our spacecraft. And we didn't really check. Uh, I was intrigued by the fact that only over the past decade we discovered the first objects from outside the solar system. And they looked different than the stones that we are familiar with within the solar system. Nevertheless, I should tell you, I just came back from an expedition to the Pacific Ocean where we went to retrieve fragments, leftover material, from the first interstellar meteor, the first object to be recognized as coming from outside the solar system, half a meter in size, that collided with Earth back on January 8, 2014. It was discovered by U.S. government sensors. And when I, together with my student, identified this object as being interstellar based on its high speed, our paper, scientific paper, was not accepted for publication for three years until the U.S. Space Command wrote a formal letter to NASA on March 2022, stating explicitly that this particular meteor is interstellar in origin based on its high speed. They check the data and they can confirm at the 99.999% confidence that it is interstellar. So we decided to go there and check what it was made of because it was moving faster than 95% of all stars in the vicinity of the sun. And moreover, uh, it had material strength, tougher than all space rocks that were detected over the past decade, 272 of them in the catalog of NASA, where this object appeared. And so I thought, well, maybe it's a spacecraft because it moved so fast. It was maybe propelled and uh, it had the high material strength, just like Voyager would have if it collided with another planet a billion years from now and it would appear as a meteor in the atmosphere of that planet. And it sounds to me like common sense to go out and check what it was made of. And amazingly enough, we can talk about the details, but we found the spheros, these dro molten droplets from the surface of this object when it was exposed to the immense heat from the fireball that surrounded it. Uh, it contained a few percent of the Hiroshima atomic bomb energy and so some droplets melted off the surface, and we found them in the Pacific Ocean at a depth of two kilometers. And on my way back, 
from that expedition in late June 2023, I saw a paper published, just accepted for publication, in the Astrophysical Journal, stating the government data must be wrong. This object must have moved at a speed that is three times lower than the government asserted, because only then are model for stones within the solar system manages to fit the data. So their model for stones didn't fit the data. So what did they say? The data must be wrong. Now, the way I was brought up is, you know, especially if the U.S. Space Command put, puts its uh, reputation on the line and says, we check the data at the 99.99%, we know that this particular object was interstellar. You would not think of dismissing that easily because this is the organization responsible for monitoring ballistic missiles. And if they got a factor of three wrong in their measurements, they would alert Mexico for a ballistic missile headed towards Washington, D.C. I would not sleep well at night if that were the case. But apparently these astronomers found it easier to dismiss the U.S. government than to modify their model. And I call that the stone age of science, where everything interstellar in the sky must be a stone. It's like imagining the stone age of humans where everything was stone. <laughs> now, if we, do, if we don't liberate our minds and consider the possibility that there might be others out there, when they look at us, they would never count us as a member of the intelligent civilizations of the Milky Way galaxy. Mm. That's my point. Right. So one of the things that you are calling us to do is, as I kind of touched on in the introduction, is to kind of discard the whole notion that if there's somebody out there and if we are ever going to encounter them, they're going to come at us at a in, in something that we will immediately recognize as a spaceship and they will be aboard it and they might disembark and, and then who knows what might happen at that point. But what you are suggesting is just as we have sent out objects of ex exploration like Voyager and, and, and several others, uh, which are even traveling outside of our own solar system, that uh, it is a possibility that there are extraterrestrial civilizations that are perhaps sending out similar objects out into the universe uh, in a similar uh, venture of, of exploration and discovery. And I think what you're saying is none of us are thinking about that, and, and we as a human race are not prepared for that. I mean, we aren't actively looking for that sort of thing. And that is one of the things that you are calling us to do is to begin looking for such objects if they are out there. Exactly. And we didn't have the capabilities to detect such objects before the last decade. The U.S. government employed a new set of satellites that allow us to find interstellar meteors of the type that I described. And it, they happen once per decade, so it's rare events. And the Panstar survey uh, in Hawaii that found... Uh, the interstellar object Oumuamua didn't collide with Earth, but they found it based on the reflection of sunlight from it. It was as big as a football field. Uh, so that 
survey telescope did not exist more than a decade ago. And so only recently we developed those capabilities and we should be ready. But instead, what I see within the scientific community is a ridicule of this subject, insistence that these must be stones, even though they appear anomalous. For example, the object discovered by Panstars was most likely flat in its shape based on the amount of sunlight reflected from it as it was tumbling, and it was pushed away from the sun by some mysterious force without having rocket propulsion. There was no evaporation that would lead to the rocket effect from it. There were no gases around it or dust, as we see for comets. So I suggested that it's just a reflection of sunlight that is pushing it. And in fact, three years later, there was another object that was propelled by the reflection of sunlight and didn't have any cometary evaporation. And the observers of the same telescope in Hawaii realized a few weeks later that it's actually a rocket booster launched in 1966 by NASA. It had thin walls, and that's why it exhibited push away from the sun by reflection of sunlight. So here you have it, a technological object. We know it because we produced it. The question is, who produced the other object that came from interstellar space, Oumuamua, which means a scout in the Hawaiian language? That's the question that I asked in my previous book, Extraterrestrial. And unfortunately, this object is long gone. It, it went very far away. We can't really see it anymore. But we should be alerted by it to search whether there is more space trash in our neighborhood. I think of it as space trash because maybe most of the objects will not be functional. They would be just relics hmm. of functional devices. Just imagine the ones we sent to interstellar space, uh, Voyager 1, Voyager 2, Pioneer 10, Pioneer 11, and New Horizons. In 10,000 years, when they will litter interstellar space for the first time, they will not be functional anymore. So they will be space trash, and they will keep accumulating over time such objects just like plastics in the ocean, because they are bound by gravity to the Milky Way. They move too slowly. By, they move at 30 kilometers per second. The escape speed from the vicinity of the sun is more like 500 kilometers per second, more than a factor of 10 bigger. So these objects will never escape. They will always remain bound. And as a result of that, they will keep accumulating over billions of years, just like plastics in the ocean. And we know that by 2050, there would be more mass in plastics than there is in fish in the ocean. So just be careful when you go to a fish restaurant after 2050. But the point is that in space, you might have the same situation, that there is a lot of trash that was technologically produced, and we couldn't find it. And in fact, the first three interstellar objects looked weird. There were two meteors, one that I mentioned, and another one in March 2017 that we might go and visit uh, in the future. And then there was Oumuamua. So the first... And uh, the fourth one, for those that say, oh no, Oumuamua is just the type of interstellar comet that has an invisible tail. And whenever you have an interstellar object, you'll get an invisible cometary tail. For those, I say, look at number four. Number four is called Borisov. It was very similar to the comets 
that we had seen in the solar system, yet it came from interstellar space. That demonstrates that what we call comets is comets. When we don't see a cometary tail, we shouldn't call it a comet, just like we don't call an elephant a zebra. I want to circle back to this curious object that was uh, observed by uh, by scientists in Hawaii, uh, uh You say it better than I do, Oumuamua. And um, you tell us, and, and you write about this extensively in your previous book called uh, Extraterrestrial, that there were a number of things about this object that attracted attention. One of them you've already talked about was its size and its odd shape, being such a flat object and nearly the size of a football field. But the other thing that was strange about it was its velocity, that its velocity was much slower than any of the stuff around it. It was relatively still in space compared to uh, other, other objects traveling through space. And this is further evidence that this was not just a big, strange-looking rock, but perhaps something that had been uh, manufactured. And you're calling for us to be not only looking for objects, but watching for those that are particularly odd in some of these ways, because that oddity is in and of itself, I suppose, evidence that needs to be more closely examined. Exactly. Now, the point is that each of the oddities that I point out is reflected in the scientific literature, in papers that were written by other authors. But then, as of last week even, there are other authors that say, oh no, that's not a problem. Now it's already six years after Oumuamua was discovered, almost. And people hope that others forgot the scientific literature, and indeed many people forgot. And so they say, oh, no, that's really not a problem. But the truth of the matter is I can point out to specific papers shortly after these anomalies were realized. They were realized not by me. Each of them was realized by a different astronomer. So one astronomer says, just a week or two after Umuomo was discovered, he says, oh, look at this. This object is almost at rest in the local frame of the Milky Way galaxy, in the local rest frame. It's called the local standard of rest, which you get to when you average over the random motions of stars in the vicinity of the sun. The sun also has a speed close to 30 kilometers per second relative to that local standard of rest. Yet Oumuamua was nearly at rest in that frame. It was moving slower than one in 500 stars relative to that frame. So I say that's an anomaly, one in 500, on top of all the other anomalies, that it was flat, it had an extreme shape, didn't have a cometary tail, it had a push away from the sun, it didn't show any jitter in its motion that you would expect as a result of cometary evaporation. That's what, what we see. We see a change in the spin period of the, of the comet when it sheds off mass. And it needed to shed a tenth of its mass, 10% of its mass, in order to be propelled at the level that was measured. So on each item, there are papers, and I can quote them. Yet, 
last week there was a blog saying, oh, forget about those anomalies. They are not really anomalies. The truth is that they are not anomalies. Now, who are these people to say that in a medium post when there are papers published in the literature demonstrating it quantitatively based on astronomical data? And, you know, I published the first paper saying that Oumuamua may be technological in origin because it's flat and it was pushed away from the sun. I just suggested that it may be very thin, just like this object in 2020, September 2020, which was called 2020SO. You can check its Wikipedia page. That was the object that we manufactured that exhibited the same push away from the sun by reflecting sunlight, no cometary evaporation. So I just suggested that. And the paper was accepted for publication within three days, which is a record time. I challenge any of the critics to show me a paper of them that was accepted for publication in a prestigious journal like the Astrophysical Journal Letters within three days. Many of them don't even have a paper over the past 15 years. But yet they diminish the significance of these anomalies. They just say, oh, there is no anomaly. Everyone agrees on that. And everyone else cheers up and down and says, yeah, 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 there is no anomaly. There is no. But that is not the way to get the anomalies away. Just look at those papers published when the data was released. The anomaly is there. So if you tell me, oh, there is actually a cometary tail, but it's invisible to us then I feel just like the kid in Hans Christian Andersen's tale, where the kid said the emperor has no clothes. In this case, Oumuamua has no cometary tail. But the adults in the room, those quote-unquote that pretend to be adults, they would say, oh yeah, actually, the emperor has beautiful clothes. You just can't see them. And I find it really surprising that people who call themselves scientists do not adhere to evidence, to data. Instead, they would claim everything in the sky should be stones, should be things that we had seen before. And I have a problem with that. We should be open-minded. When there are anomalies, we should acknowledge them, as was acknowledged but in the scientific paper, uh, literature by many different people. And then we should not dismiss and somehow raise enough dust so that nobody can see the evidence. This is not the scientific method. Right. To what would you attribute this high level of skepticism? And let's and let's just also say that uh, a healthy amount of of skepticism is uh, we we sort of think of that think of that as being necessary for scientific inquiry. I mean that that when something happens that is not immediately uh, explainable we don't immediately assume that it must be the most outrageous or incredible possibility, that there might be some ordinary uh, explanation. But, right, uh, right. You, but so, you are so talking about, you seem to be talking about a different kind of skepticism that is erected like a stone wall, not allowing for the slightest possibility of, uh, yes. of some of this but being the, the true. Stra- the, strange, the strange thing is that this criticism we were talking about is the most recent. Before that, there were at least five different attempts to explain the anomalies of Oumuamua in a fair scientific way, which I welcome. One of them said, it's a dust bunny. It's a collection of dust particles pushed away by sunlight, okay, because they are lightweight. And you need this cloud of dust 
to be a, a, a hundred times less dense than air. Okay, so just think about the cloud that rises above a pot of boiling water. That has roughly the density of air. And think about a hundred times more rarefied cloud being Oumuamua. That's what they claim. And my point is that a cloud so rarefied would not have the integrity to maintain its structure when it comes close to the sun, as Oumuamua did. It would be heated to hundreds of degrees and would just lose its integrity. We wouldn't see it as a single object. So then other people recognized this problem, and they said a few months later, they said, oh, actually, maybe it's an iceberg made of hydrogen. And then I showed in a paper that such an iceberg made of pure hydrogen, which, by the way, cannot form in a planetary system like the solar system. It must form in a molecular cloud where hydrogen exists at large abundance. So they said, yeah, maybe it it forms in... completely different environments, molecular clouds. And I showed that it wouldn't be able to make the journey because it evaporates very quickly. Hydrogen is very loosely bound and starlight would evaporate it along its journey. And these authors agreed to the criticism. So then a third group came along a few months later. And by the way, I'm telling you all of that, just realize that now there are people saying, oh, there is no problem whatsoever. But you see these teams coming one after the other and trying to solve the problem. And some of these papers were published in Nature magazine, the most prestigious magazine. They were immediately accepted for publication so that the argument can be made of a natural origin. And everyone celebrated, yeah, but then there was a problem. So then another team came along. So the other team that came along said, oh, no, it's not a hydrogen iceberg. It's actually a nitrogen iceberg. Yeah, we found it. We cracked it. And everyone celebrated. Yeah, it's a nitrogen iceberg. And the idea is that it was chipped off a planet like Pluto. So together with my student, we did a simple calculation. We estimated how many Pluto-like planets exist in the Milky Way galaxy. And imagine chipping off all of the solid nitrogen on the surface. And we asked, is there enough? to explain the detection of Oumuamua as a member of that population of chips the size of a football field? And the answer is no. There is not enough nitrogen. So then another team came forward six months later. That was three months ago. A paper in Nature magazine. And everyone said, yeah, now we got it. And this team said, It's a water iceberg, like we see in the solar system, except the water ice is exposed to cosmic rays. And the cosmic rays break the water molecule into hydrogen and oxygen. You need a third of the water to be broken. And then when it gets close to the sun, you get a cometary tail made of hydrogen because that goes to the surface and evaporates. And we showed within a day, as soon as I saw this paper on nature, within a day, we wrote a paper with a colleague of mine, Sim Huang, showing that they made a mistake by a factor of 10,000, 10,000 mistakes in the energy equation. They did not include a term which is called evaporative cooling that would reduce the surface temperature by almost an order of magnitude and make this model not viable. Now, this last model a few months ago 
was publicized by all the main media outlets, Wall Street Journal, Scientific American, the New York Times, all of these. So a day later, I wrote an email to, to those authors of, of those reports, and I said, sorry, but there is a mistake in the energy equation. You don't need to claim that you agree with it. Just report about it and say, Avi Loeb said that. And they said, we don't want to confuse our readers. And I thought to myself, what is more confusing? Giving a false narrative or correcting a false narrative? So one of them said, you know what? I checked with the authors and they said they have no comments. They want to refrain from any reply until our paper is accepted for publication by peer review. And he said, that's a fair game. When your paper gets accepted for publication, get back to me. Three months later, meaning just last month, our paper was accepted for publication. With minor corrections, it still makes the same point. These authors made a huge mistake in the energy equation. I, I went back to the same science reporters and I said, look, our criticism is now accepted for publication after peer-reviewed. You told me that you would publish a comment about it. I got no reply whatsoever. Now, what does it tell you? It tell you, tells you that there is a, a narrative that people prefer to have, and they are looking for an excuse to say it. They don't care if there is a mistake in the energy equation. They don't care if there is a real problem with all the anomalies that I mentioned. They just want to say it's natural and move on. But that's not the way science is done. If I show you that you made a mistake in the energy equation, you have the obligation to get back to me and explain why not. You can't just brush it off the table and say, I don't care about it. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with Professor Avi Loeb. He is chair of Harvard University's astronomy department, the leader of their Galileo project, and the author of a new book called Interstellar, The Search for Extraterrestrial Life and Our Future in the Stars. It is Professor Loeb's contention that we need to be looking for extraterrestrial life and civilizations and evidence of that uh, in a way far different from what has occurred to this point. And we need to approach this with openness and with transparency. In fact, Professor Loeb, one of the things that you say is not only do does the scientific community need to kind of relinquish this uh, resistant attitude, uh, but that the, beyond that, the, uh, the scientific community must also be ready to uh, work with great transparency. That's some of the most interesting passages in the book, I think, even apart from the whole matter of extraterrestrial life and whether or not it exists, is just the idea of, of trust being necessary and that the scientific community prefers to have a lot of its discovery process done behind, behind closed doors. And you think uh, doing this more transparently and more collaboratively is the key to making uh, important discoveries. Tell us more about yeah. the significance uh, of and importance of this kind of transparency uh, and openness that you're calling for. Well, it was illustrated by my recent uh, expedition to the Pacific Ocean. We went after the molten droplets 
the thorough of the first recognized interstellar object. And at first we found other things, but eventually we found the thorough. And I wrote 41 diary reports till now about this expedition. They were read by millions of people around the globe as soon as I posted them. And they were translated to Spanish. And I got a huge amount of fan mail while I was on the expedition because people thanked me for showing how science is done. Science is done by seeking evidence. That's the first thing. And many of my colleagues have strong opinions, and they actually prefer to shy away from anomalous evidence, not just not seek it, but when it comes your way, shove it under the carpet and say that it's an object of a type that we've never seen before, but it is natural. Forget about it. And that's inappropriate. What we need to be driven to is seeking more evidence that will clarify the nature of this object. That's what the expedition was about. And I described the scientific method. So before I went there, colleagues told me, oh, you're wasting your time. You will not find anything. You're wasting money. And I said, I'm not asking you to do anything. You just sit back and relax. And if I come back with nothing, you can tell me that you didn't expect me to find anything. So I'm not taking away money from dark matter research. Just think about it. 83% of the matter in the universe. For 90 years, we recognize that 83% of the matter in the universe is of a substance that we don't find in the solar system. So now imagine the same astronomers who argued that this meteorite must be a stone and must be from the solar system, because otherwise it doesn't fit their model. If they were confronted with data on dark matter, they would say, we cannot fit that data with the matter that we are familiar with in the solar system, in particular stones. We can't fit it. You know, if we assume all the matter is stones, we can't fit it. And surely enough, they would say, the data must be wrong. But the data is not wrong. We now know from many directions that there is evidence for dark matter. And that constitutes one of the main frontiers, unsolved puzzles in cosmology. And I say the, the nature of dark matter is less important to the general public than the answer to the question, are we alone? More than two-thirds of Americans believe in extraterrestrial intelligence. That's more than the fraction that believes in God. So that's a question that the public cares a lot about. And now we see that the government cares about, because the Senate Majority Leader, Chuck Schumer, defined it as an important subject to be discussed. Mainstream politicians talk about it. Yet, only in academia you see dismissal, ridicule, pushback. As of last week. And I asked, how is that possible? So my way of explaining that is, or let's put it in a positive way. My lessons are that the negative undertones of social media and academic jealousy should not diminish innovative research. And that's why I insist on my thesis. I want to educate my colleagues about how science is done. It's done by collecting more evidence, not by listening to what you say. And at the same time, it's a good educational 
exercise to show the public how science should be done. And you know, one of my colleagues admitted, indeed, there is some jealousy in it. And then he said, it's about time that reporters pay more attention to boring research projects. <laughs> and I say, you know, science can be exciting. Why not engage in it? I want to ask you about uh, a very different question, but it is related, just to have you kind of compare the importance of being truly scientific. I'm thinking about uh, a phenomenon that many people have talked about, uh, which is namely this whole, whole notion of, of alien abduction and this, uh, what I think most people would regard as rather preposterous claims uh, that aliens are coming down and abducting people and doing experiments and depositing them back on earth and so on and many of us have kind of heard these stories and it is one of those i'm in some respects it's 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 the kind of story that probably does not do uh helpful service to what you are investigating uh because that would seem to be you know a, a, a very different sort of thing but it's it's the kind of thing about which people were rightfully needed to be skeptical and demanding a certain kind of proof that, of course, can, can never be, be, be offered. But, but uh, it is, it is the, the, the kind of possibility that is so exciting that certain people just desperately want it to be true. And, uh, yeah, I don't care. I don't, okay, let's not waste too much time on this because sure. I don't care what people say. I am advocating for the scientific method where data is collected by instruments not by eyewitness testimonies. And the reason is simple. People are not to be trusted. Now, suppose someone would say, I know that I went faster than light. Would that mean that we shouldn't engage in Einstein's theory of special relativity just because some guy somewhere made a nonsensical statement about it? That's what you're saying. Some people make statements that are not substantiated by any evidence. Therefore, we should not examine this subject. That makes no sense. Right. I don't care about what people say. What I'm doing is following the evidence. And the evidence is collected by instruments, not by people. You cannot write a scientific paper where in the abstract you say, this person told me that. Why? Because there are people who claim that they are Napoleon. Now, would it make them Napoleon? No. You can ask for their ID and see that they are not Napoleon. That is physical evidence. And they can claim for as long as they want that they are Napoleon if they keep insisting you put them in a mental institution. So obviously, psychologists could investigate the human phenomenon of claiming that you were abducted. That has nothing to do, zero to do with what I'm doing. Nothing whatsoever. Don't confuse the two. Absolutely. And, and to be clear, they are doing, what they are doing is attending to what people told them. Right. That and is not evidence in the in the court of physics. It could be claimed as evidence in the legal system, but we well know that there are people put in jail for the wrong reasons. And when DNA testing comes along, which is scientific evidence, they are released. Uh, I only raised it uh, not to make the connection, but to help you dispel the connection, because... Uh, you, I, I don't want anybody listening to our conversation to think that that this kind of scientific inquiry 
uh, is in any way related to that. I mean, it, I, I raise it for you to have the opportunity to make that very clear distinction. Yeah, which, but which let, I let, think me also, you... let me also explain that this is not in the realm of the public necessarily, because for 40 years, four decades, I'm not talking about one year, two years, 40 years, the mainstream of theoretical physics was contemplating string theory, extra dimensions, and the multiverse. Okay? In the same sense that I was talking about before, there is no evidence whatsoever for extra dimensions, for more spatial dimensions. No evidence. And moreover, there is no clear hint that we might find such evidence in our lifetime. No evidence and no in the foreseeable future. Just listen to what I'm saying. People are working for 40 years on notions that have no support in experimental evidence and have no chance that is obvious to the eye of getting it tested experimentally in their lifetime. And they still work on it, and that is the mainstream of theoretical physics. Mm. So I have no complaints about the general public. I have no complaints about politicians not attending to evidence. Because my colleagues in theoretical physics have been doing that. And then you see people who make uh, science accessible to the public, like Brian Greene and Neil deGrasse Tyson, basically glorify string theory as if it's the frontier of physics. How can it be physics if physics is supposed to represent reality, but we have no experimental tests to tell us that these ideas have any bearing on reality? How can you celebrate it as the frontier of physics when it's not physics? Hmm. So all I'm saying is, is that it's all around us. You see it in the political arena. You see it in religion. You see it in uh, the case of unidentified aerial phenomena. And you see it in the mainstream of physics over the past four decades. So it's not unique to a particular sector. I'm not saying that people claim that they were abducted are singular, and they are the only ones that are going in the direction of not seeking evidence. They're, it's all around us. And what I'm saying is we should correct it in all of these sectors. Absolutely. We all need to have a better understanding of what science is, of what true scientific inquiry is, of what the scientific method is. I think you're absolutely right. Most of us do not understand that. Uh, nearly as well as we should, and of course that's one of the things that you that you that you call upon uh, for us to to, to to consider. A last question: that uh, your book, the whole second half of your book, is almost spiritual in nature, as you uh, have us kind of think about really amazing and incredible possibilities for if we were to contact, make contact not only with just an object from. Uh, from life elsewhere, but if we were actually able to encounter uh, extraterrestrial life more more directly, what would that encounter look like, feel like? How would it work? How would we communicate? And uh, I, I think you are so right when you say that uh, science fiction tends to really simplify that. And, uh, and in fact, uh, we have to be prepared for all kinds of, of possibilities that we've never imagined before. How would you have us right. think about some of these possibilities? 
Yeah, so first of all, I don't like science fiction because it's not consistent with the laws of physics as we know them, most of the storylines. Um, and what I believe the first encounter would be is with a technological gadget, not with living creatures because they would have a hard time surviving for millions or billions of years in interstellar space. But on the other hand, artificial intelligence could provide an object with autonomy. It, it can ad adapt to changing circumstances. So it's possible we would find functioning devices with AI. And uh, of course, if, if, it, if they came to our doorstep before we arrived at their doorstep, they would be far more advanced than we are. And therefore, it's an opportunity for us to learn about our technological future. And moreover, uh, I think that the encounter would inspire spiritual awe of the type that you encounter in religious texts. You know, when Moses was confronted with a burning bush, uh, that was a sign for him of a miracle that God exists because it looked unnatural. But if I were there, I would use the Galileo Project's uh, infrared cameras and measure the temperature of this burning bush, measure the energy output per unit time, and inform Moses whether indeed this burning bush that is not consumed could be natural or it represents some supernatural entity. And, you know, that is how science can help us, even in the context of spirituality. It would amplify the awe that Moses would feel. And, uh, you know, two rabbis contacted me with, uh, saying that they were inspired by my writings to write a sermon for the Jewish High Holidays. And a lot of artists approached me, one that is a songwriter that won four Emmys, three Grammys, three Oscars, and so forth. He wrote a song about my research. Uh, a playwright wrote a play about my research that he wants to be featured on Broadway. Uh, and the sculpture is now designing a sculpture two meters in size uh, to celebrate my research. So. I find that art and science do have something in common, and spirituality as well, in terms of exploring the unknown. Well, that's certainly just the tip of the iceberg of what we find in your intriguing new book titled Interstellar, The Search for Extraterrestrial Life and Our Future in the Stars. It's published by Mariner, and its author, a Dr. Avi Loeb. Dr. Loeb, Thank you so much for giving the world this uh, really incredible and thought-provoking book. And thank you for being my morning show guest today. I enjoyed speaking with you. Thanks for having me. It was a great pleasure.